Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. Honor and a privilege to have you here with me. I may have actually gotten this one wrong we'll have to see about the shutdown i had assumed up to this point that they would uh, prefer to not make a decision to decide to not decide something that most politicians most of the folks in congress have turned into an art form unto itself to delay to defer to deflect to find some explanation for why they don't need to or can't do their jobs, but they really want to. We are now just hours away. The countdown to shutdown, the shutdown showdown. Uh, the, the political media has got to love this, right? It creates so much drama. It's almost like the, the the Super Bowl of congressional activity right now. At the end of the day, it's in and of itself not quite as uh, catastrophic as many would lead you to believe it is kind of funny though you i've seen throughout the day different reporters and folks that are part of the dc media ecosystem who when asked well you know will the, will the post office still be open they're like ah you know it's uh we'll have to check on that one a lot of a lot of wikipedia going on today about the shutdown hey look i'm not gonna pretend that i'm some shutdown expert but a lot of folks out there are realizing, like, what does it even really, what does it even mean if the government shuts down? And the truth is that it would be temporary, and much of the government, or a vast majority of the government, just continues on as is. And the parts of the government that don't, uh, will anybody will get their back pay when the government comes back online and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, I did see some... Uh, pushback from the Republicans today to all this. That would seem like they were getting a little more effective. Calling it the Schumer shutdown. Yeah, the Schumer shutdown. At least they're making some some headway and understanding that this is largely uh, largely an issue of what the public believes. But some of my favorite points about all this, as we go into, I'm on air with you right now, and this could theoretically change as I'm on air. Right? There might be some last-minute something, I think. It could still happen, right? I mean, unlikely, but I would be very pleased if I could bring to you the, oh, they've got a four-week extension of the government budget, which just means we're going to have this conversation again in four weeks, right? Pretty much. Maybe they would just decide to uh, extend it even further beyond that, but they don't want to take tough votes. They don't want to get into all this. Uh, a few points of this. The hypocrisy of the Democrats on this whole thing is absolutely breathtaking. It's amazing. It was not long ago. It was not long ago that the Democrats were 
very opposed to the notion of a shutdown. You remember, do we have something from the Obama administration on how much they hated shutdowns? Well, we got Paul Ryan talking about what they said. Here, here we go. Paul Ryan, let it rip. If we do have a government shutdown that the Democrats insist on, troops don't get paid. They're holding our military hostage. Children's health insurance dries up. In seven states, run out of money for their children's health insurance. The medical device tax kicks in, so anybody getting a medical procedure that involves a device is going to pay a whole lot more for that procedure. Those are things that are going to happen if the Senate Democrats continue to insist on shutting down the government. Senator Schumer said this very tactic, this very strategy a few years ago was governmental chaos. Uh, Nancy Pelosi called it legislative arson. This is exactly what they're doing, and it's completely unnecessary to hold the government hostage for something that's completely unrelated. And by the way, those DACA negotiations are underway. There are good faith bipartisan negotiations underway on DACA right now that have been occurring for some time, and that deadline is not until March. So what they're simply trying to do is hold all of government hostage, our troops, kids' health insurance, for a completely unrelated issue. And I think it's shameful. I've been saying this all week. Democrats don't want a clean funding bill, meaning that there's no negotiation over any external issue. They want to shut down the government on behalf of illegal aliens. Isn't it also interesting, as we sit here and have our discussion, as we tend to do, that I say the term illegal aliens... And I can tell, and this has even happened with some friends of mine, even some conservatives. I go, ooh, no, Buck. We're, we're talking about dreamers here. We're not talking about illegal aliens. Oh, but you see, dreamers is a made-up term, right? Dreamers is not actually a, a deferred action for childhood arrivals. If you want to say DACA-covered individuals, that's fine. But dreamers is a sales term. It's a marketing term. The, the real legal terminology is, in fact, illegal alien because people who are in the country without legal status are illegal aliens. So the Democrats in the minority without control of the House or the Senate are willing to bring a portion of the government to a halt to prevent uh, troops from getting paid on time and to shut down different monuments. I mean, it's not even clear, by the way. It is very complicated in terms of what the shutdown mechanics are. It's not clear what would and would not be shut down because if it happens, then the government has to make decisions about, well, how much money do we have to keep certain things going? Right? That That's a part of all of this. Some offices, I think federal courts have enough money for a few weeks to keep going. So even if the government technically shuts down, federal courts are funded for, for weeks before there's a shortfall there. Uh, there are some other government agencies where they would pair things back, but all keep going. But you know, they, all border patrol still active. You know, the FBI doesn't stop doing what it's doing. The IRS may be put on hold for a few days, all because of DACA, though. All because of the Democrats' need, desire, fixation on getting an amnesty for a group of illegal aliens in the country. Look, I, I understand that there there is an emotional appeal. I understand what the argument is, but it shouldn't be at the expense of the rest of the United States. And if it were such a great idea, I also wonder why was it that when the Obama administration had the House and the Senate, majorities in both, they did nothing on this. They like to keep this 
issue alive without having to take decisive action on it at a congressional level. That's why they wanted to do it through the executive branch. That's why they wanted Obama to just keep signing things. He doesn't, you know, he didn't care, especially in his second term. Congressionally, it is a non-starter to give a massive amnesty. That's why they don't want to do it. People say, oh, they'd love to sign their names to it. Maybe they would right now. They get a lot of good press, including a lot of Republicans. But once we, fi- once we figure out what I've been telling you all week, which is that it's millions, it's millions of people, it's not 800,000, there would be quite a change in opinions about this. And if they're on the record voting for it, then we could have a throw-the-bums-out movement. Fascinating that there's not even a DACA bill to vote on. So they want to shut down the government, and they don't even have the alternative in place. They just want to shut down the government in favor of DACA. That's what this is all about. The Democrats want to do this. They are shutting down the government while screaming the Republicans are forcing them to shut down the government. You can't make this stuff up. Mulvaney pointed out earlier today, he, he's done a good job. I think Mulvaney's a very competent, very competent government official. Um, he was saying they don't even have a bill in place. There's no DACA bill to vote on, and there's no emergency in terms of the timing on DACA. DACA does not expire until March 5th. So there's absolutely no reason to tie these two things together right now. And you got uh, Warren Davidson making making the case, saying, that look, it's about DACA versus troops, and we know where the Democrats stand on this. The administration will, will treat them uh, as they should be treated, and they'll be prioritized the right way. Um, in fact, uh, in, the, in, a, in the very short term, this may help us solve the problem, because I think the reality is, is unless, uh, when will the Senate get to 60 votes? When they have to. And uh, it's hard for me to imagine that Democrats are really going to prioritize uh, 800,000 people whose families brought them here illegally over our troops. And yet here we are. It looks like that's going to happen. Democrats will, in fact, prioritize 800,000 illegals over the troops. Um, It's Freestyle Friday, everybody, which means I'd love to take a whole bunch of calls. If you want to call in, 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. And because it's Friday, if you are so inclined, hit it. Action. You've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you? Movie. This is Sparta! Quote. Say hello to my new friend! Fridays. Action Movie Quote Fridays. 844-900-BUCKS. See if you can bring it to the Action Movie Quote Master. Can you defeat me on air in real time? Let's see what you got. Uh, Also, your thoughts about the government shutdown that looks like it's going to happen. Take that and any other ideas you have. We'll be back uh, right after this break. Fake news better run and hide because the Buck Sexton Show is back. So Bernie Sanders. Bernie. Hey. Bernie was asked just a little uh, while ago. Earlier today, he was asked about the shutdown. But before... We get to what Bernie said earlier today. Let me remind you all of what the uh, distinguished gentleman from Vermont had to say about government shutdowns back in 2013. After, remember, that whole midterm election happened in 2012? 
uh, and the re-election of Barack Obama and all that stuff. There was a shutdown talk then, and Bernie Sanders in 2013 on shutdowns had the following to say. Our Republican friends in the House are trying to annul the election that took place last November. Some of them were shocked that Obama won and that he won by 5 million votes. They haven't gotten over it. And what they are saying to the American people tonight is, we can now bring the government to a shutdown, throw some 800,000 hardworking Americans out on the street, and we are going to get our way no matter what. So what's changed between then and now, Bernie? Well, let's first ask you, what, did he, what, what, is, what is the difference, Bernie Sanders? And here's what he said when asked today. Bernie Sanders, back in 2013, of the group that was trying to figure out a way to force a debate on Obamacare repeal, what they are saying to the American people tonight is maybe we have lost the presidential election. Maybe we have lost seats in the Senate and the House. This is Sanders talking now, 2013. It doesn't matter. We can now bring the government to a shutdown, throw some 800,000 hardworking Americans out on the street, and we're going to get our, our way no matter what. This is exactly what they accused the Republicans of doing back in 2013. There is absolutely no reason to ins- have to insert a DACA discussion to immigrate discussion into the funding bill today. Senator, your response. I, that doesn't sound like I'm not, I don't recall saying anything like that. Ah, he does not recall saying it. He does not recall saying it at all, apparently. Well, that's an easy way to get around the what's changed, Bernie. I don't know. I don't remember. And yet here we are now. Doesn't look like much has changed at all to me. Oh, remember when uh, Paul Ryan mentioned legislative arsonists, courtesy of Nancy Pelosi? That's what she said. Shutting down the government is an act of legislative arson, she said. There are lots of excuses that they use, but for many of them, I call them legislative uh, arsonists. They're there to burn down. I think Orrin Hatch had a fantastic response to Pelosi today, although it wasn't specifically to Pelosi, but... I'm going to use it as a response. That are so often played around here. I don't mind them maybe in bills that are lesser in, in import and in nature, but to do it on the chip bill, my gosh, it's just, it's incredible to me. Madam President, this is the greatest country in the world, but we do have some really stupid people representing it from time to time. Yes, we do. I like it from Orrin Hatch. We have some stupid people representing the country from time to time. That is a, that is a true statement. No, no question about it. There are some people out there who have a whole lot of authority because they've won elections, and they are uh, not impressive. And this is not going to be a situation that is good for the American people if there's a shutdown. It's not going to be catastrophic, as I said. It's not some huge deal, but... It just goes to show you that the Democrat Party is ideologically driven to the extent that it is not in any way held back by its prior statements, by the arguments of the past, by any of that, right? And another example of this that will come to mind is when they got rid of the filibuster for, for judicial nominees, and then they were all upset that the filibuster for judicial nominees was gone when they lost control of government, 
and were saying that it was terrible and they, they that they would do that for Supreme Court justices. Is Republicans doing that is terrible? This is what we're up against, folks. I wish I could say that there was uh, some silver lining to all this other than uh, Democrats have made it very clear that their priority is illegal immigrants. Now, this this is so important to them because they know that they win on this, they win on everything else. This is zero-sum for the Democrat Party. If they get a mass amnesty, you will never have Republican majorities again. It's just a question of when the numbers really kick in. But the Republican Party will become a shell. It will become a an opposition party to the ruling Democrats and one that is really just a, a formality. It's not actually going to have power. It's not going to have any authority because it won't have the votes or it'll change and become something else. The Republican Party will be a, just a version of the Democrat Party and we'll be arguing over how best to put government in charge of more and more of our lives, right? It won't be government should do less, should take less of our money. It'll just be a, a, an issue of who does a better job as a state is, who does a better job running things for all of us, for all of you. So um, I, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the memo. And later on in the show, we will be joined by Andy McCarthy, National Review, and also, uh, we will have Kim Strass of the Wall Street Journal, two excellent writers, political analysts, just just great minds, and we'll have them weighing in on the shutdown, the uh, memo that is supposed to be smoking gun level. That's what we're told about FISA abuse. We'll be getting into that in just a few moments here, Uh and then also just to hear from all of you with your thoughts on on what's going on, what's all the latest. Um, oh, and I will mention later on in the show we'll talk a bit about the March for Life today. I would feel remiss if I did not spend some time on that too. So uh, 844-900-BUCK. I would love to chat with some of you folks out there. What do you think about what's going on here? It's a shame that the uh, shutdown showdown becomes such an all-encompassing political discussion. There's some other interesting dynamics that we could get. Actually, you know what? I will. I want to. I want to discuss more of the immigration enforcement side of things because that doesn't really change, regardless of how this shutdown goes or does not. I should note that uh, producer Quinn is telling me that there is right now. It, it is likely that there will that you're going to get a deal. That's what they're saying. Or well, what's he saying now? Okay. Which would be great for the country, and also because then I would have been right all along saying they're just going to get a deal, and this is all nonsense. This is all political theater. Now I'm starting to, ah, man, I shouldn't have doubted myself. Because I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, what what are they going to get out of this? They're they're not going to get a, there's no DACA bill to vote on, so DACA is not even, it's not even possible to avoid a shutdown with DACA right now. So this was just the Democrats trying to get the base all fired up, but it was much ado about nothing. It was sound and fury signifying nothing for you Shakespeare fans out there. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Shutdown, showdown, or shutdown theater? You tell me. Holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. 
and detailed meeting. We discussed all of the major outstanding issues. We made some progress, but we still have a good number of disagreements. The discussions will continue. Discussions will continue. That was from earlier today. Trump invited Schumer to talk to him mano a mano. I bet that was an interesting discussion of uh, two New Yorkers with uh, very, very healthy egos squaring off on a negotiation like this. Would have been quite interesting, I think, to have been able to sit in that discussion. 844-900-BUCK if you want to call in. Let's take Dan in Mansfield, Ohio. Hey, Dan. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm all right. Okay, uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, I'm trying. Okay, I'm a 62-year-old deplorable and proud of it. Nice work. Hey, and um, I think Bernie Sanders has played too many Beatles records backwards in his time. He's, uh, he's you know, he's his own guy, that Bernie. The, the Burn is an interesting character, I will say that. Yeah, he is. Hey, uh, I, I'll get to the point and get off here so other people can get on, but... Uh, yeah, everything that they're saying to Democrats is just complete falsehood, and they're writing people really hard and trying to get them to believe all this crap. And I, I make a suggestion to any of the listeners out there, get with your local Tea Party or somebody and get a punk, pocket constitution, stick in your pocket, read it, mark it, or make notes in it, and the next time some liberal comes up, just whip that baby out and say, tell me where it says that. I had a guy come in my shop one day, and he was ranting and raving about uh, separation of church and state. I said, really, it's in the Constitution? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's in the Constitution. So I pulled it out. and said, here, show it to me. The guy hasn't been back since. So you can shut him down pretty easy if you, if you bring out the truth, because the truth will always prevail. Sometimes you got to bust out the Constitution. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Everybody should have a pocket Constitution on hand. I have an app that is the Constitution on my phone, so it's the same idea. Oh, do you? Yeah, the Constitution wanna, app, because I'm cool. That's what all the cool kids have. <laughs> well, I'm not a cool kid. I'm a 62-year-old guy. I, yeah, I, I like that you know? kick it old school, though, the you know, pocket Constitution. It doesn't have to be yeah. digital. Yeah, hey, I want to I give a shout-out to my uh, American government teacher back in, in the early 70s who instilled in me um, the American government and the system and pride in my country. All right. Well, shout out to that guy. And Dan, shout out to you. High five, buddy. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Uh, let's take James in Georgia. Hey, James. How you doing, Buck? I'm all right. It's been a long week, but I'm good. How about you? Outstanding. I've been in a lot worse places doing a lot worse things, so I ain't complaining tonight. There we go. I, um, I'm a Marine from the veteran from the Gulf War era, and what really bothers me, I think, most is that I don't understand why the rights in the Constitution are given to folks that are not United States citizens. As a United States citizen, you go to another country, you break their laws, you go by their laws. You can scream you're a United States citizen all you want to. Yeah, well, I would note that you don't see these movements, James, in... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. You were saying... I said, and unless you've got some serious pull and you break laws in another country, you're in a hole. Yeah, you're in trouble. Marine, when we were overseas, if you're off base, you better abide by their laws or you're stuck. It's all about politics and in I this country, as you know, my friend. The, the problem, James, is that the uh, Democrat Party has become the amnesty party because it benefits them, because they know that there are a oh, lot yeah. of votes, a lot of votes tied to it. 
And so it's, but it, with that amnesty comes an endorsement, a de facto endorsement of lawlessness. And so this is a deeply cynical maneuver. They keep saying that, okay, we need amnesty for the Dreamers, but they want amnesty for all 11 million illegals. The Dreamers are just the beginning of it, right? They're not going to, they're never going to say that there shouldn't be amnesty for everybody. So what's with the, what's the, with the pretense that this is just about people brought here when they were kids? This isn't. This is about all illegals. This is just step one. But the plan is to get 11 million of them to be permanent residents Fully, you know, they have all the the full rights of any other American, except maybe voting until the Democrats control Congress in the White House, and then it'll be voting, too. Well, guess what? Do you remember how Texas was created? Yeah. Okay. The Mexican government invited invited, uh, American settlers to come in and settle Texas. Who owns Texas? The United States. There we go. All right. <laughs> hey, man, James, thank you for your service, and thank you very much for your call, buddy. I do appreciate it. Uh, let's take – oh, we got Dr. Rick in Maryland. Hey, Dr. Rick. Hey, Buck. I, I really would love to get the clarity of your uh, thoughts, and, you know, from your analyst background. Um you know, I maybe I shouldn't, but I watch a lot of YouTubers, and I think there's a there's a possibility of a lot of tinfoil hat theories out there. But it looks like some of the stuff is actually coming to uh, you know t- to happen in terms of FISA and all the indictments and stuff. And I just you know to get some clarity, the QAnon, all this stuff. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that, or what might be actually true? I have a I have a lot of thoughts on it, um, and I don't. <laughs> as that may not surprise you, I uh, the the issue for me right now, and we're going to talk to both uh, Andy McCarthy and Kim Strassel uh, uh, from the Wall Street Journal about this later on in the show. But the issue for me right now is I feel like we've been a little burned by Republican members of Congress. Saying that the oh gosh, you know that this we've got the smoking gun now. We're finally going to get to the truth about the real collusion, which was against Trump, not Trump and Russia colluding together. But I, I do think it's very possible that we're going to see some unsavory stuff in this uh, in this memo. But can I just, Doctor Rick, I'm going to I'm going to put that on hold because that's a, a topic for the next hour and also for our guests coming up. So I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. I just, I need you to keep listening basically. How about that? Um, I listen to all three hours. There we go. You're a good man <laughs> with excellent taste in radio. Thank you, doctor. And he's a doctor, everybody. See, thank you very much, sir. Shield tie and have a great weekend. Larry in Johnsville, Ohio. What up, Larry? Hello, Buck. Enjoy your show. I'm sorry. I'm not a doctor. Larry, you're awesome uh, in your own way, buddy. Thank you for calling in. Pardon me? I said you are awesome in your own way. Thank you for calling in. Okay. This government shutdown. I'd like to have been a little mouse in the, in the office of uh, the Oval Office when uh, Trump and... Uh, Schumer? Trump, yeah, me too. I'll bet uh, if I was Trump, I would have held that five-page uh, memo just kind of flashed it in front of you. I mean, how bad do you want this disclosed? Now, if you don't want it disclosed in entirety, then get your butt back to Congress 
and get your Democratic buddies to vote on this bill. I like where your head's at on this, Larry. At least Larry's ready to play hardball, you know? Larry's not messing around. I got one other quick point. Yes, sir. If I was Trump, and this is a radical idea, I would do an end run around this immigration problem. I would get the Secretary of State and the Ambassador to Mexico and sit down and make a long list of the advantages of Mexico becoming part of New Mexico or the 51st state. Mm -hmm. I'd also make a long list of the disadvantages. Number one, there'd be no money transfers from the people in the United States is sending money. Remittances, which are estimated to be about $20 billion a year of remittances, meaning people in this country sending money back to Mexico. That would just be one. Their, their standard of living in Mexico would greatly increase with minimum wage factories being able to go to Mexico and build. And yes, sir. I think the advantages to the Mexican government would far out out uh, outweigh the other side. No, I hear you, Larry. It's a very interesting idea, and I appreciate the call and I appreciate the thought. Thank you very much, sir. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. We are going to talk about that. Uh, FISA abuse memo, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Was it, in fact, weaponized against the Trump campaign? Looks more and more clear that it was, which is a big deal, everybody. It's a big deal. Roll into a quick break here. We come back. We'll start to talk about that. And also, whatever else you got on your mind, let me know and stay with me. If you want a window into the future of the immigration situation in this country and how it will be treated, especially if you do have a an amnesty for uh, 700,000 that will grow much larger than that, I want to play for you a pretty a pretty stark. It's it's chilling, I think. A clip from the California Attorney General Javier Becerra who is talking about a new law in California. Now, this is going to this is not like not going to sound like like the world on fire audio in terms of like, oh, my gosh. But just stay with me through this for a second. Play play part one of this where he explains this new law in California. Go. There are new laws in place in California now in 2018 with the advent of 2018. I mentioned two of them specifically, AB, uh, AB 450 and SB 54. AB 450 in particular deals with 
the workplace uh, in particular and how we go about treating the information about the workplace and employees at the workplace by employers, such that we try to protect the privacy interests of people who work there and that we're not sharing information in ways that would violate the the rights, the privacy rights of those individuals and the ability of folks to work free of uh, coercion and free of, of fear at the, at the workplace. And so what we're trying to just make sure is that employers are aware that this is 2018. There is a new law in place. And, you know, the the admonition that's out there for anyone is ignorance of the law is no excuse if you violate it. Let me tell you what he's really talking about. This is the state attorney general for the biggest state by population in the country, which also has by far the largest illegal alien population in the country. He's When he says privacy rights, he means immigration status. And what California has done is they have, under the guise of privacy rights, set up a Byzantine set of laws and procedures with real sanctions attached to them for employers so that if you think that you are supposed to check someone's immigration status or share someone's immigration status with authorities and in, and you are in any way in violation of these California statutes, you're in big trouble. In fact, he says, what kind of trouble? Play, play, play part two. And it's important that employers in California understand what these new laws are because ignorance of the law does not let you escape punishment. And we want our our employers who are working really hard to keep our economy going and employ more folks to understand what these new laws are. And I just wanted to make sure, given these swirling rumors about what might be going on, to just be aware of what their rights and their responsibilities are. So it's not to say if you find there are employers who have violated AB 450, is your office, are you guys ready to go after Are them? you going to prosecute, she's asking. If there are violators of California law out there, uh, law enforcement will investigate and prosecuting authorities, could be the local prosecuting authorities, or it could be the attorney general's office, will prosecute those who violate the law. He has a lot of gall, my friends. He's saying that this is about privacy rights. It's about illegal immigrants. It's about illegal aliens, people who are literally in violation of federal law. And what California has done now, because it's a sanctuary state, is they have passed statutes where if you in any way, and they've tried to make it, I I read through the law last night and I was like, this is crazy. If you check someone's immigration status and you don't have and you're not doing exactly the way that you're supposed to at the time you're supposed to, it's a violation. You, know, you can get big fines and you can get prosecuted for it. A violent member, privacy, when people talk about privacy rights, if you tap somebody's phone, yeah, no one's, you know, no one's dead because of it or something, right? But if you tap somebody's phone, that's a felony. You can go to prison for that. Privacy rights. If, if somebody puts a camera on your home, uh, violates your privacy rights that way, and they're found, that's a felony. They're going to go to prison for that. So, so privacy rights is not some, oh, who cares kind of a designation for this. What California is doing is they have they're creating the a quote right to privacy for illegal aliens to be in the country illegally. They're trying to create state laws 
that do everything possible to protect the violation of federal law that is an illegal alien. It's amazing when you think about this. They're th- they are threatening employers here. They are specifically trying to make it harder for employers to comply because now it's, okay, well, if I pass along the information I'm not supposed to or if I in any way, I know it sounds like, Buck, how complicated could this be? Can this be? Very complicated. They're, they're intentionally making it difficult and complicated so that you will just, as an employer in California, be like, look, I'm going to stay away from this. I don't want to get in trouble with the state of California. They don't want it. They're passing laws in California so that employers won't be helpful to the federal government when it comes to enforcing federal criminal law. That is what they are doing. That's how lawless that state has become. How this hasn't gotten more attention. When I initially saw this, I was I, I actually couldn't believe it. I went and read SB, whatever it was. I mean, I actually went and read the statute last night. And read it over a couple times. I thought, oh, so this is what it has come to now. California is so invested in immigration violations and is so hell-bent on doing everything it can to foster uh, an environment for even more illegal immigration, I would note, that they're threatening employers who would like to be helpful to the federal government in enforcing the law. And... You got, you know, employees of the state or of the city in various parts of California who are saying that they'll go to prison over the issue of legal immigration. I mean, I just want to ask these people, do, do, does everyone get to stay? Does it, When someone shows up tomorrow and they're not allowed to be here and they start crying because mm-hmm. they don't want to go home, do they get to stay? Because I think the answer has to be yes or else this is there's no principle involved here. This is just about power politics. Back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. There's a last-minute effort I'm I'm seeing here to fund the government. What that means, who knows? We know the Democrats are gathering behind closed doors. I think at eight thirty is the plan. So they're going to gather behind closed doors and try and find. Some, I don't know what they think they're going to find because they don't even have a DACA bill yet. So they're going to cobble together a bill and force Republicans in the in the middle of the night. No way, no way. Doesn't doesn't seem like uh, this is going anywhere. But to shut down city, my friends, which is okay. We're we're all going to be okay. I mean, it's hopefully something that the American people will punish the Democrat Party for in time because they should be punished for it. They. Lost the, you know, they they just lost a, a big election a year ago, House, Senate, White House, and yet they think they can just make these unilateral partisan demands because people, this is I, I don't want to put, I don't want to overstate this, but Democrats are essentially saying we think enough of the American people are either too ideologically rigid or too dumb to realize that we're the ones who are shutting down the government. And hence, Republicans will get the blame. That's really a part of this. That's really what's going on here. 
So I, I just want to note that that no matter what the Democrats say, no matter what rationalizations they come up with, if this were such an important issue to them, they wouldn't have waited and done it in this way. And yet <laughs> the situation is, as I'm telling you, it looks like last minute talks, but still no deal. I wonder how long the shutdown will go. I think there's like a billion dollars of productivity lost a day under a shutdown, something like that. Um, The stock market didn't get particularly hammered today because of it, though. People realize that this will all it'll all really be okay, And it does bring up, I think. That if the government runs pretty okay with only essential personnel, maybe we need to look at more of the whole non-essential, non-essential personnel thing and. Or making some cuts. You know, maybe the Department of Education doesn't really need to be what it is right now. You know, that's just just a, just an idea. I'm just putting that out there. But there's the other big story, and I th- I was uh, seeing and hearing and reading some people who believe that today we might even get a little bit more of the validation, the uh, affirmation of. What's really included in this FISA memo? I just want to play for you what uh, what some of the members of Congress out there who have access and who know are saying about this. For example, here's Representative Matt Getz. The allegations contained in this important intelligence document go to the very foundations of our democracy, and they require an immediate release to the public, in my opinion. I am calling on our leadership to immediately hold a vote on the floor of the House to make public the key contents of this intelligence memo regarding the FBI, the Department of Justice, and President Trump. Critical allegations, and I cannot stress how important they are, and the Judiciary Committee uh, would likely find the contents of this memo very interesting, very revealing. And, and just essential to the way our government interacts with the duly elected president of the United States. This is no small measure. It is just as important as keeping the government open through the weekend, and we need to have a vote on it immediately. Every Democrat on the Intelligence Committee voted against making this information available to members of Congress. Every Republican voted for it. So I think that when it comes to who's protecting transparency, it's the Republicans. We want this information available for the American people. I really hope that we don't have some Republican members of Congress here who are using this to get on TV and and do a little grandstanding and fundraising. And I'm not accusing them of doing that. I just I hope they realize that if they after all this stuff they're saying, if the hashtag release the memo movement gets its way, if those of us who believe that this memo on FISA abuse should become a public, publicly available document if, if that happens. And then it's just, yeah, you know, there's like 1% of FISA requests involve some level of disparity with what blah, 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 blah. You know, if it's not smack, smack you in the face clear that something occurred here that was really problematic, that there wasn't true malfeasance, This is going to become a boy cried wolf scenario on the Republican side. You know, Democrats are already guilty of that. You know, they're not just crying wolf. They're crying wolf, wolf, wolf all year with Trump and Russia. But that doesn't mean that Republicans should cede their credibility and start doing the same thing by overstating. I'm sure the memo says some things about 
civil liberties and security and privacy that are all really interesting. But does it make it clear that senior members of DOJ or the FBI were conspiring to undermine the Trump campaign to help Hillary Clinton and to abuse their powers in that process? Because that's what is being alleged. That's what people are saying. Here's Representative uh, Raul Labrador. What's interesting is that this morning, the Democrats decided to vote against releasing this memo. That's number one. Number two, uh, when I was in the in the room, and I've heard from other members of Congress, when they were in the room, there were no Democrats who actually came down to look at this memo. So they were so interested in the Russia collusion story until their Russia collusion story actually started, started unraveling. So now that we have some information that is being provided to every member of the House, they are unwilling to release it or to even look at it. I think what what the American people will find is that they're going to be shocked by this memo. Why the partisan split in releasing a memo? Let's just play this out a little bit. If there's really nothing to see here, if it's not a big deal, if it's a who cares situation, then what's the problem with releasing it? Republicans want to release it. And in fact, given what the Republicans have said about this, given the storyline this week about how important, how potent this memo would be, I would think it's in Democrat interest to say, yeah, you know what? Sure. Share that memo. Put it out there. See, you guys are a bunch of clowns. There's nothing in there. It would make Republicans look really bad, but they're voting against releasing it. And they're trying to drag their feet and stall. Why? Now, somebody was really to pin me down and and ask me to guess. My sense of it is that it probably is bad for Democrats, but not as bad as we're being told it is by Republicans. That would be my guess right now. Just because, you know, you've had Devin Nunez, remember with the whole unmasking situation, we heard some things about And that never really, you know, it it didn't go where, where it was initially indicated it was going to go. We didn't get that aha moment that we were told we would get. And so I'm a little bit skeptical that this is going to be quite as as profound as we are being led to believe by members of Congress. But I mean, here the basic storyline is quite clear at this point. You had a bunch of very powerful pro-Hillary DOJ and FBI folks who figure Hillary is a shoe-in for the election, but why not, to borrow a phrase from one of them, take out a little insurance, use the powers that they have to do spying under the FISA law, and create a pretext and, and use the dossier as a pretext for it. So legally, they're covered, most likely, right? No, no one's going to prison over this. No matter how bad it looks politically, I think it's very unlikely anyone's going to go to prison, as I've talked to you about before on the show. Uh, They would be abusing their discretion to help out Hillary. The upside of that would have been that if they got something that was, remember, the Kizilyak-Flynn conversation leaked to the media. I mean, illegal classified leaks occurred. All of them anti-Trump. None of them pro-Trump. None of them anti-Hillary, I would note as well. So there is a cabal, there is some crew, there's some group inside DOJ and FBI 
that are playing games, including crossing the line into criminality to hurt Trump. That's established. That's a fact. So you figure that these these folks, the cabal, we will call them, or the deep state, same idea, the deep state cabal, there you go, they figure if they get something good enough, they can completely deep six the Trump campaign, right? They can take it out, finish, finish it off before the election even happens. And even if they don't get anything, there's a 90% chance that nothing ever happens and no one's the, all the, uh, the wiser because Hillary will win. And, you know, who's going to raise an issue then? They're not going to be in a position to raise the raise the issue. DOJ, the first thing Hillary was going to do if she won, well, I mean, she probably keeps a lot of the Obama appointees at DOJ, but anybody who was even a little bit disloyal to Hillary was going to get ousted from DOJ. Right? She was going to just get rid of anyone in the justice apparatus who could be a problem for her, make sure she had loyalists everywhere. So you're going to have Hillary loyalists if she wins. And there's just never it's just never going to come out, just like with her with her email server. Everyone says now, oh, why would she be so reckless and so dumb? If you don't have a couple of real fluke situations there. You know, with the whole Gucci for hacking and it, it was never going to come out that she had this server. We were never going to know about it. And Trump's victory has to be viewed from the perspective of these FBI DOJ people as a fluke as well. It was just too tempting to try and uh, run some kind of an anti-Trump, pro-Hillary operation and use discretion from within the national security apparatus, specifically at DOJ and FBI, to do it. Does anyone doubt, by the way, you, you see some of these very senior Obama appointees, Clapper, Brennan, Comey. I know Comey's not necessarily... Just an, you know, it's, you know what I mean, though. A lot of pro, and Sally Yates, right? A lot of very clearly pro Clinton, pro Obama people have been exposed from the top echelon of the national security apparatus. So, why is it in any way surprising that some of them may have said, you know what, we might be able to do something really helpful for Hillary here and do it in a way that, worst, worst case scenario, we get fired? They'll be they'll be heroes to the left. That's what I don't think a lot of people are prepared for here. Even if it is a smoking gun situation. Look, if it is what people are being led to believe it is, right? This memo, the release the memo movement, that's what everyone's talking about today. If it shows if it shows that the dossier was the basis for this whole Russia collusion thing, in whole or in large part, or substantially, it means that the media, the Democrat Party, are in for a very rough couple of years here. But for the individuals that may have engaged in the conduct, I'm telling you, the worst thing that happens is they get fired, they step down from their DOJ and FBI jobs, they're not going to jail, it's not going to happen, because they would have known exactly what to do so that on a worst-case basis, they're unethical, but not necessarily illegal. And... They will be lionized on the left. They'll get a big book advance, hashtag resistance tattooed on one arm, travel around, go to all the different universities and colleges and everything and talk about how they were standing up and fighting against Trump. Look, I mean, Chelsea Manning's running for Senate as a Democrat, for heaven's sakes, right? I mean, come on.
You really That's what I want everyone to be prepared for here. Don't think that the Democrats, if this all gets exposed, and you know what the other storyline will be? Uh, this is really going to give you indigestion before the weekend, but I, I have to tell you. If the memo is the bombshell, if it's, you know, senior FBI guy one speaking to senior FBI DOJ guy two and three, and, and they're saying, we got to take Trump down, we got to finish off his campaign, we got to, you know what really happens with all this? The Mueller probe continues. The left will say, okay, they only did that because they were they had other reason to believe that the Russia probe was necessary or that the Russia collusion was going on. So now we've really got to get to the bottom of this. They're not going to abandon the narrative. That's what I think is so disappointing if you really play this out. Even if FISA was abused... Yeah, look, they're going to take a big hit, and they don't want people to know this, and it would be an enormous scandal, and I get all this. But the media will pivot because they are shameless and they are liars. They will pivot immediately to, okay, well, those people messed up, but the reason they messed up wasn't because they're partisan hacks with no ethics, but because they knew of the Russia collusion with Trump, and they had to do something about it. So now we have to really find that collusion. I know it makes my head explode, too, but think about it. You, I'm telling you, that's the way it's going to go from the media perspective. People in government, they're going to get they're they're going to get fired if this is what happened. But eight, four, four, nine hundred two, eight, two, five. What do you think about this memo situation? My friends release the memo. Is it going to happen? We've got a lot more. We'll be right back. Senator Donnelly has now indicated that he'd be voting for it. So it sounds like there are some some Democrats, especially Democrats in, in some red states that President Trump carried, who are taking a longer look at this. And as the day goes on, understanding what's at stake here. Well, what's at stake is a government shutdown, as you already know. And Democrats seem to really want to push it to that end state. That's the outcome that we think we're going to get here. Uh, Steve in Mississippi. What's up, Steve? Hello, sir. Steve? Buddy. We're not, we're not hearing you. All right, I guess we got to move on. John in Atlanta. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, sir. Hey, Buck. Podcast minion checking in. Oh, good to talk to you. Thank you. Hmm. That's what I say every time I call you, guys, by the way, podcast. I, I know. I recognize the voice. So what's on your mind today? A couple of ob- observations and a movie quote, if you want one. Uh, you can do whatever you want, buddy. All right. Well, first off, have you seen some of the insanity coming from the uh, transgender movement where they say not everyone who has a period is a woman? Have you ever heard them say stuff like that? Yeah, I have heard them say stuff like that. Yeah. I used to think they were crazy until I heard Cory Booker, and now I kind of believe them. Uh, huh. What else is on your mind? I, I, I thought that was funny. Okay, here's the observation. So Trump allegedly says asshole. Um, Cotton, Tom Cotton said he didn't say it, and Tom Cotton's an honorable man. Dick Durbin, who's a worm, said he did it. Yeah. So he says asshole, and the world goes crazy. Trump's a racist and everything. Two days later... Chuck Schumer says, we have to fix DACA so these people aren't thrown to the wolves. Who are the wolves? Obviously Mexican people, right? No, that's not what he meant. Come on. 
Uh, when he says thrown to the wolves, he meant that in the rhetorical sense of like they, they you know, it, like they're being screwed over. Not he, he didn't he wasn't referring uh, to people. going. No, but he's going. No, what I'm saying is using their logic against them. Yeah, but it wasn't. He meant it as a as a phrase. It wasn't. All right, John. I'm. But thank you, John. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna call it today. We'll get you back uh, another time when we're we're a little more in in sync with what the what's going on here. All right. Boy, I think I might have. I think I might have Greek food tonight. That sounds like fun. What do you think? Get a euro on the way home. I lived in Greece for a month over a summer. Was it six weeks? It's a fun place. That'd be kind of good. Just thinking out loud here, folks. The weekend is. I got. Friday show weekenditis right now. I need to. Everybody's working for the weekend, especially the Freedom Hut right now, my friends. Um, do give us a ring, 844-900-2825. We've got Andy McCarthy coming up in a little bit. We're we'll talking to the man himself about what he thinks about this whole release the memo situation and also some other cases that are making their way through the courts, or one case will be retried in the court shortly. We got Kim Strassel coming up later this hour. Uh, she'll be joining us to talk about uh, the shutdown because it's just the, the shutdown's taking up all the oxygen in the room right now, and there's not really much in the way of other stories out there. Although I did see something about how Trump Trump wanted he once said that he wanted all sharks to die. I, <laughs> it's a story that I saw today. I'm just telling you, and Trump wanted all sharks to die, and you know. I don't I don't put sharks in that category, but I, I do put mosquitoes in that category. And I know they're like a necessary part of the ecosystem, but that's where we are now as a as a country. People are doing stories about which animals Trump doesn't like. We'll get into some more stuff in just a few. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. I'm not prepared to say it was intentional collusion. I've not seen any evidence of that. Do you have evidence that there was, in fact, collusion between Trump associates and Russia during the campaign? Not at this time. I've seen no evidence either. Have you seen any evidence that this dirt, these emails, were ever given to the Trump campaign? Not so far. Not so far. You hadn't seen evidence of collusion. Any evidence to you of money laundering by the Trump organization? Uh, He did not provide evidence. We did not include any evidence in our report that had anything that had any reflection of collusion between members of the Trump campaign and the Russians. There was no evidence of that included in in our report. I understand that, but does it exist? Not to my knowledge. So that's a whole bunch of different folks making it pretty clear they got nothing when it comes to collusion, yet here we are, grinding on into year two. Still got a big investigation going. I think I saw that from a reporter at NPR, so take that for what it's worth, that a single session uh, in front of the Mueller counsel, you know, special counsel, when you are being questioned, costs like $30,000 with a legal team. That's the estimate. So it's not like this is all happening and people aren't really being put through the ringer and that this is just something that goes along. And, you know, in the end, we'll get to the truth. 
they've already brought charges against people for very much Mickey Mouse level crimes and crimes that in some cases would never have occurred had it not been for the investigation process crimes. Uh, and I, I really don't need to be I, I, I don't like getting lectured about how, oh, tell the truth, you know, process crimes are real crimes. R- right when we all still remember that Hillary Clinton was ex- was obviously kept out of the kind of jeopardy that Mueller is trying to put all these other uh, Trump people into. So, we're just—it's going to keep on grinding on, I suppose. Uh, I I, look—I hope this memo really—I hope this memo nails it, and we get to the truth, and we can all just—the story is getting to be tedious on top of destructive. It is now becoming a tedious story, and and when the when the media feels so desperate that they'll run around with like, "Oh no, it wasn't—it wasn't Carter Page; it was Papadopoulos." That's how it all got started. No, no, no. Uh, I was in the intelligence community for a little bit, as those of you listening to the show know, and that you would get an FBI investigation of a presidential campaign based on what some guy that was low level uh, said to somebody in a bar about something he heard somewhere. Uh uh-uh. uh. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. That would, that would be a much, much bigger deal. Uh, let's take uh, Jason in Mississippi, Gulfport. Hey, Jason. Hey there, sir. Hey, sir. Yes, so, sir. We're uh, listening. My, my main. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Uh, uh, my main talking point is the backpedal a tidbit to where you mentioned the Californian laws that per, uh, will prosecute employers for releasing what they would consider private information about the employees. But isn't it still a valid disruption of the law to employ people under a illegitimate immigration status? Yes. Wouldn't they be harboring, harboring, say, a fugitive of the state or more or less something along those lines? Yeah, it's, it's, a, violation of, it's a violation of law to employ an illegal alien, yes. But it's a violation of federal law, not state law. But wouldn't that be a contradiction between the federal and state level? Well, what do you mean by contradiction? Well, do you have a law that says if you break it, we will find you for releasing the public information? And you have another law saying you employed a illegal alien, we will now punish you for that. So if, uh, for the lack of the better, you're, you're condemned either way you go. Well, but the, you see that the way that they're structuring the law in California has to do with uh, the notification procedures, right? So, and, and what they're really just trying to do is scare people because I read through this statute. I'm like, wait, what is this even saying? There's a specific portion of the statute that, that talks about when you can even inquire about somebody's immigration status. So what they're trying to do is make it so that for an employer in California right now, if you say, hey, wait a second, guys, I'm worried there's a crackdown coming. Everyone here is, everyone here is legal, right? If you're out of the cycle of when they're, you're supposed to ask or if there hasn't been a specific federal request for their status or if you've already checked their status and you go to recheck it, that was one of them too. So if they provided you, let's say, with a fake Social Security card and when California you can get a driver's license even if you're illegal, but if they provided you with fake documents – 
and you wanted to check them again, I believe that could be a violation of this California statute. So they're just trying to put roadblocks up and and use threats to prevent people from understanding what the immigration status is of, of individuals and their employed. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's it, that's a separate issue from the enforcement of federal immigration laws as it pertains to an illegal alien in the country, right? Immigrations and Customs Enforcement has to come and take an illegal alien and deport them. There's no state agency that does that. So this is where you get into the differences between state and local law enforcement and federal law enforcement. Does that make... And now, now, I mean, if it's confusing, it's... that's. Well, one, no, I, I find I it confusing. What you mean that the separation between the federal level and the state level allow each one to ap- uh, operate autonomously? Well, like, remember that the, the courts yeah. upheld the courts upheld that the Obama administration could prevent the state, in this case Arizona, from helping in the enforcement of immigration laws, and so now California is passing laws to prevent to prevent the state from helping. Right, so Arizona wanted to help federal immigration enforcement, and the Obama administration said, no, you're not allowed to do that. That's only our thing. And the courts actually sided with them, which was annoying. In California, they're passing laws. The president hasn't corrected that issue. Yeah. In California, they're passing laws that say it's illegal for you to try and help uh, immigration enforcement under these circumstances. Does that kind of make sense? I know it's... It's it's one of those laws that have... That is there for one purpose and one purpose only is to either a condemn people that want to do the right thing and fix the U.S. as as an upcoming and moving area, but uh, we'll get penalized or we'll penalized for it too. Yeah, um, it, it is. It's it's a law that is is passed in bad faith, at least in the perspective of federal law and the rule of law in this country. But Jason, thank you very much. For calling in. Richard, Mississippi, you're up next, sir. What's going on? Yeah, Buck. Damn, what? I've never heard you so down about what's going on. You don't think Devin Nunes, when he went and read all the stuff, found out what was going on, and the Democrats attacked him so viciously, you don't think he started building the case right then? That's a fair point. I mean, you could say that he got the ball moving, sure. Well, I I firmly believe that the American people want to know what was done. Me too. And we'll do. We'll I'm do I'm hoping, about. Richard, that it's I'm hoping that it's bombshell, smoking gun, you know, political nuclear explosion, so to speak. I'm hoping it's big stuff. I'm just saying, if it's not, there's gonna be there's gonna be a cost to that because we've been led to believe it's really big. I, I hope it is. I think it could be. I believe Nunez is a very smart man. And when they started attacking him, he just quietly, if you notice, he just quietly went away and started building a case. And when he had the case, that's when he came back. He surfaced again with the goods. I ho- Look, I, I hope you're right, and the release, the memo movement gets its way. Uh, Richard, have a great week- weekend, my friend, and thank you for your, uh, your input into what's going on here. I appreciate it. We're going to be rolling into a break here shortly. We have Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal who will be joining us. Uh, Kim is always a great guest, very, very insightful, got a lot to say on all of this stuff. And I guess I won't spend much more time on how Trump doesn't like sharks, but I kind of understand that. I just, I'm going back to that for a second. You know, sharks are a little scary.
I know there are a lot of pro shark people out there. They're beautiful animals that, you know, are necessary for the world or whatever. But you ever seen a shark up close? They're a little scary. I haven't seen one, but I'm told they're scary. Kim Strassel of The Journal coming up. And then Andy McCarthy of National Review right after that. Then we'll talk about the March for Life and we'll close it up. So uh, stay with me. All right, so it's the shutdown showdown, as we've been saying. We are in the uh, final hours here, and I wanted to get a sense of the political dynamics from somebody who can speak with expertise, eloquence, and insight into just that. We have Kim Strassel with us now, Wall Street Journal columnist, a member of the editorial board there, and just writes great stuff. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Buck, and for such a nice introduction. Wow. Oh, but, but of course, uh, absolutely earned. So tell me this, Kim. What, what do Democrats think? What do they think they're doing here? They think they're winning. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe they are. It's a big bet. Look, what they're betting is that uh, if they shut this down, the Republicans take the blame. Because as you and I both know, it is a general rule of thumb that Republicans always get blamed for shutdowns, whether they are in the White House, out of the White House, uh, in Congress, out of Congress. Um, so they had an opportunity here. They could either go into this midterm year and uh, try to give some things to their constituents by working with this president, or they could join the resistance movement, uh, try to blame Republicans for a shutdown, add that to a general campaign theme going on that is that this is a, a chaotic Republican Congress, it can't accomplish anything, and then try to beat on that all the way until they get majorities in the House and the Senate. So even though anybody paying attention and, and looking at the facts honestly can tell that there's nothing about the offers thus far on the table about the CR that Democrats object to. They're just not getting an additional thing they want. They are in the minority now as a political party. But because you need 60 votes in the Senate to get any budgetary measure through, they are holding this whole thing up. Makes me think, why do we need 60 votes for budgetary measures? I mean, whose idea is this, Kim? I feel like I think maybe we should rethink this one. Yeah, I mean, look. Let's look at this. The Democrats do not object to anything that's in the CR, okay? The CR, in fact, contains things that Democrats view as their own priorities, like the funding for children's health care. Uh, Democrats are demanding something, which is immigration reform, that Republicans have said that they're going to do anyway. Uh, we still have six weeks until the DACA deadline. Um, and, and, by the way, there isn't even a DACA bill to vote on. And I think all of that shows very clearly that this is about politics. They don't really have any policy objections. Now, I give the Republicans some credit. I think they have been better about getting their message out uh, and, and, and saying, look, we pass this through the House. It's going to be the Democrats who do this via a filibuster. Um, but a lot of Americans don't understand that process. And the press corps, we saw today with the, the press briefing that you had uh, with Mick Mulvaney, um, the, the Democrats are intent on making this uh, Trump's fault. And I guess they just assume that enough of the American public either won't be paying close enough attention or is not familiar enough with the congressional procedures here that somehow Democrats will, will come out on, on top in this, despite everything else. Um, we're speaking to Kim Strassel, everybody, Wall Street Journal columnist. You should go to uh, WSJ.com, WallStreetJournal.com, to 
read her latest. Uh, and she's got the dossier rehab campaign up there, which I want to talk to Kim about right now. Kim, uh, what's going on with the dossier? You're, you're following this very closely. I feel like there is no reasonable explanation out there for why the American public should not, in short order, not in six months, not in a year, weeks, if not a week, be able to see at least a redacted version of what this FISA-involved memo is all about that we've been told about by members of Congress this week is a bombshell. Yeah, there is absolutely no reason. In fact, more than that, I would I would make the case that it is imperative that they do see it because we have been doing this now for 18 months with Republicans claiming that there is a, a conspiracy within the FBI, that they misbehaved, they abused their power. Uh, and we've had some evidence that that was the case. And then Democrats on the other side saying, no, no, there's a Trump-Russia collusion. Well, there is a very simple way to get closer to the bottom of this, and that's just open it up and let's see what the FBI really had. Did they believe in the sources that were behind the dossier? Did they even check them? Did any of it ever check out? What did they represent to a FISA court uh, or misrepresent to a FISA court? Was this a legitimate spying operation on the Trump campaign? Because that's a pretty big thing, and they better have had some really solid reasons for doing it. Kim, what are you hearing from your sources or perhaps from your colleagues and just based on their assessment of what their sources are telling them over at the journal about is it really are we convinced it's a bombshell right whether it gets released in part or in whole that's another component of this which we were just talking about but have you heard from people who have who know i mean what's your confidence level that this is going to be information that we are going to say wow we really need to know this versus oh you know here's you know a lot of the congressional stuff it's a it's a big promise and not a lot of follow-through I am absolutely convinced that what Devin Nunes, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, has said is accurate in that he has basically said that what is in here is highly disturbing uh, and it will show uh, abuse of the FISA law uh, and, and which is the, and the part of the law in FISA, I should say, uh, that allows the U.S. government under very close restrictions to spy on U.S. citizens. And so if he says there's abuse there, then there is, because Devin Nunes, he takes a lot of incoming from different people. But I would point out that he has yet to be wrong on anything that he has uh, alleged. He's been proved correct on all of it, the unmasking and, and everything else. I, I get a little bit more nervous when you see uh, the congressman running out and popping off to say there will be people in handcuffs. Um, I don't know uh, if it potentially rises to that level, and, and I think they ought to be careful about suggesting that. Um, but it, there is no question that there was abuse, and America needs to see what it was. Kim Strassel of The Wall Street Journal, everybody. Go check out our latest at WSJ.com. Kim, have a great weekend. Rest up. We're going to need you back on the airwaves soon when we get the actual memo released, all right, <laughs> or sooner. Thanks, Buck. Thanks, Kim. Have a good one. You know, this is this is not complicated in terms of the American public's uh, not just right, but I mean, I would say there's an, there's an obligation that the government has to finally come clean with what's been happening here. When you think about how much time is being wasted, not just by the media, you could argue maybe that's a good thing, right? They're just because if they weren't wasting time on this over at CNN and MSNBC, they'd find some other 
subject to dive into and, and escalate and make a huge deal of. Uh, but you could argue that this need th- there's an obligation here that supersedes anything else that I can think of. Oh, the secrecy of of a of a particular FISA warrant. Fine, redact the bare minimum to protect sources and methods. But we need to see this. We really, really do. We got Andy McCarthy joining in just a few minutes here to uh, follow up with a bit more on that, as well as some other cases that are making their way through the courts. So, team, I'll be right back. So we are expecting something big at some point to uh, to drop here in the whole Russia collusion, fusion, GPS extravaganza, all this talk about a memo about FISA. But where are we right now with what we know and, and what's a realistic expectation about what we could find out based upon this memo that has not yet been redacted and released? We got Andy McCarthy online to help us think about all that stuff. Andy's a best-selling author, contributing editor, National Review, former assistant U.S. attorney. Andy, great to have you. Buck, great to be with you. So, well, what do you make of all this? There's a lot of a lot of hubbub, a lot of chatter, a lot of rumint out there about uh, this memo that talks about FISA abuse and. We don't know much more than that, but what what are you what are you working from in terms of uh, your your assumptions and analysis about this right now? Well, I think, Buck, that we're, what we're seeing is an unfolding process that will eventually result in the public being informed about exactly what happened with this dossier. So I think I've looked into in the last couple of days. Um, the power that Congress has to disclose classified information, which is something of a, um, a, a sort of a, an untested area. There are, you know, court precedents and rules that suggest, uh, you know, some of them suggest that the, this is a complete plenary responsibility of the executive branch, that no one other than the president really has this power. And then there are other cases that cut in the other direction and there are congressional procedures and some congressional precedent for at least putting a lot of pressure on the executive branch, if not necessarily directing the executive branch uh, to disclose information. So bottom line is um, what would have to happen is the committee would have to recommend that some classified information. And here specifically what we're talking about was – how, if at all, was this dossier, which is a Clinton campaign uh, opposition research project, how was it used uh, in an affidavit or an application to the FISA court to get um, permission to do electronic surveillance on people connected to the Trump campaign, at least Carter Page and maybe uh, other people as well? And I think what would have to happen is the committee would have to recommend that. That would then go to the full House uh, to vote on it. And then it would be referred to the president as basically uh, something along the lines of a stern request, if not a demand, that the, that the information be released. And at that point, I don't know why Trump wouldn't release it, because it's actually in his interest to do it. Are there any procedural ways that, that you're aware of any that— Democrats on a strictly partisan basis could prevent the release of this via this mechanism you're talking about with Congress? Yeah, I don't think they have the numbers to do it. 
Buck, I think that if the Republicans stick together on this, they should have the votes to do it. And frankly, you know, I I think it looks really bad for the Democrats. Not that I'm, you know, who am I to be giving them advice? But it, it seems to me it's not a credible position to take to say um, you guys are just trying to distract attention from the all-important business of Trump's collusion with Russia, um, because what's the what's the downside of having more information? You know, if it turns out that what the Republicans—this is just a bunch of, of uh, saber-rattling that the Republicans have been doing, and there's really nothing to this idea that the dossier was used in a FISA warrant, then a lot of Republicans are going to have egg on their face. And that's going to make the collusion narrative seem more powerful rather than less. So I I just don't really see that they have a good political opposition to this. Andy, what? And we're speaking to Andy McCarthy, everybody of National Review. Uh, What could be realistic in terms of sanctions outcome? Where would this go? Assuming it is what it has this, and we're talking about this memo, everybody that. Members of Congress have been speaking out, saying who, they they have seen it. They say that it it is you know jaw dropping. I've even seen. I think one member of Congress said you know people will be fired over this. Maybe people will go to jail over this. What realistically speaking, Andy, even if they use the dossier as the basis for a, a FISA warrant, what could happen? Well, Buck, it really depends on exactly what they did. And what percentage of it um, accounts for the application that they made? So, for example, in normal wiretap litigation, you know, in every criminal case that that involves wiretaps, as you know, there are always motions to suppress the wiretap. And it is sometimes alleged that the government misled the court in um, seeking the wiretap in, in the information that was presented. And the normal formula that applies when that happens is the court, for purposes of argument, discounts the information that is alleged to have been misleading and then looks at the rest of the warrant as if that information didn't exist. And if there's enough information in the rest of the warrant such that the warrant would have been granted anyway, um, you know, the government gets a stern talking to if it really did give misleading information. But it's not the end of the world, right? Um The real problem happens when, and I think this is a twofold problem. Number one, did they use information that they didn't verify and represent it to be something that it wasn't? Namely, did they present this partisan opposition research as if it was refined American intelligence reporting? So that would be a big problem. And secondly, does the dossier make up 100 percent? of the presentation that they made in applying for surveillance? Is it, you know, 2% or is it someplace in between? I think the more important it was to the granting of the surveillance, the bigger the problem it is. Let's say, though, I mean, what is the smoking gun scenario? Because people keep saying I, that they, you know, and you get a lot of, oh, my sources are saying this and sources are saying that, but... How could this memo be a smoking gun when it comes to, let's say, showing FBI and DOJ collusion against the Trump campaign? I mean, what would that realistically—I know you haven't seen it, Andy, and I'm pushing here a bit, but 
What could right. that look like? I mean, because it sounds to me like if they know, I mean, they know what they're doing. They probably, especially when you talk about a formulation and percentages, they might have been operating within their discretion, even if they were abusing it. Well, uh, it, we already know if they didn't verify it that they're outside of their normal procedures, right? So, you know, if they used a pretext in order for the incumbent Democratic administration to spy on the rival Republican campaign, that's a Watergate-type abuse of power. So it would be a very, very serious matter. Now, obviously, the, the political people who were in control at the time are no longer in office. But at a minimum, it would be a big problem for people in the Justice Department and in the FBI who are who are still there, um, if, if you know if they if such a thing uh, actually happened. And in terms of the collusion narrative in in general, Buck, I think if it contributes to the idea that the whole collusion storyline was really a result of this dossier and not much else. Um, that won't end Mueller's investigation, but it would really, you know, I, I think put a big dent in it. And it would probably move people to ask at this point, you know, if you don't have anything on Trump, then say so. And if you want to go after Manafort and all these other guys, that's fine. But like the president shouldn't be governing under a cloud if that if it's not warranted. So you think I mean, that really gets to it there, Andy. There's the possibility that, and I know we're basing this off a memo that has not been released and that people are reporting on second or third or 15th hand at this point, right? They haven't seen it, but they've right. heard somebody, you've heard somebody. But it's very clear there's a storyline out there that this memo shows abuse of FISA against Trump. And you think if that's true, it could it could really take the take the punch out of the Mueller investigation. I mean, it might not shut it down tomorrow, but all of a sudden it's going to be like, what's really going on here, guys? Yeah, I think, Buck, that if it turns out that that people objectively make a judgment that that what really drove this narrative is this dossier, that this dossier is really responsible for this whole idea that uh, Trump had some kind of a espionage conspiracy with the with the Russians, because the, the clearest statement of that is the dossier, at least that we know of. Um, I, I think that that's a big problem for Mueller's investigation. And as you say, it doesn't end it. It doesn't mean that, like, it's illegitimate for him to have charged Manafort or anything like that. But it will create in the public mind, uh, I think, among people of goodwill, if this happened, uh, a real real questions about the legitimacy of the investigation. How confident, uh, confident are you in, in Mueller as a as a public servant, Andy? Do you, you know him, right? I know you knew Comey, but do you know Mueller, too? I, I'm not. I don't know him intimately, but sure, I've I've spoken to him over the years, and I know him a little bit. And well, at least we could say maybe by reputation. Then, are you confident that if if it were really the case, if it were clear to Mueller that the Fusion GPS dossier was the basis for this, that he would take the appropriate steps to wind this thing down more quickly, or do you think that the pressure is so great on him at this point that he almost it's almost like it's gone beyond his control? Well, Buck, let's not forget you and me don't know, but he does. Right. I mean, he knows <laughs> we don't know, but he knows. Right, That's true. Um, so if he hasn't shut down the investigation already, I, I don't see how the fact that we might know something suddenly that he has known for a long time is going to change his behavior in any way.
Right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, I'm just I'm trying to get a sense as to whether it, has this taken on a life of its own, even beyond what the facts are of the case thus far. You know, does does he feel yeah. like he has to continue on just because that's the expectation from so many people? I mean, I, I just don't know what Mueller's well, doing. Th- let me just say two things about that, though, Buck. Sure. One is let's look at what he's done already, which is. He hasn't brought any charges that are suggestive of Trump collusion with Russia, right? For all the hullabaloo, there's been none of that. And secondly, his mandate is not to make a criminal case against Trump, although he's got the power to do that if there, if there were such a case. His mandate is to get to the bottom of what Russia is doing to threaten our elections and our institutions. And there is a lot of evidence that they're trying to do that. So it's not like he's got nothing to do besides criminal cases. Andy, can we hold you through the break for one second here to talk to you about the Menendez retry? Guys, uh, I I wanted to ask Andy about this, and we went a little long on Mueller because I'm just fascinated by this whole situation, as I'm sure many of you are. Andy, hold there for one second, and we'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back. Andy, thank you for staying with us. Uh, the, The Menendez case, the Senator Menendez case, DOJ, I see here, says that they will, in fact, retry it. What can we make of this? Well, it's interesting. You know, Buck, I think that the Supreme Court has made these cases very, very tough to win um, with the uh, with the McDonnell case that they decided. Uh, was it uh, was it two Junes ago? I think um, they've they've made these corruption cases very difficult on the government. On the other hand, it seemed to me following the case that there was a lot of evidence that even if you couldn't convict Menendez of bribery, that he had a big problem with whether he he truthfully, uh, whether he filed truthful disclosure statements. And I was a little bit surprised that he beat, he didn't really beat the whole case because it was a hung jury, but I was a little bit surprised that that he didn't go down on those counts. It looked like the jury kind of looked at the case as an all or nothing thing and didn't either convict or acquit him on individual counts. And if I were the government, I would probably want to take another shot at at least that part of the case. And one more thing for you from the legal side, Andy, the Supreme Court's going to be looking at what's going on with the Trump travel ban. You got any thoughts on that? I think the, the court buck is more likely to tell him to go to the Ninth Circuit first. I think if I were the Supreme Court, that's what I'd be inclined to do. Um, this is a pretty blatantly lawless move by the district judge in California. I mean, to tell a president that he can't reverse an executive order, I mean, that's, that's like on its face preposterous. So I think if I were the Supreme Court, I'd tell him to go tell it to the Ninth Circuit. And I think even in the Ninth Circuit, Trump's got a chance of winning. What do you one. think about impeaching some judges, Andy? You know, get, get a, little, uh, a little bit of accountability from the bench. Well, you know, Buck, I think that impeachment needs to be brought back across the board. The, the longer time goes on, and I, as you know, I wrote a book about this subject a couple of years ago. I think it's ingenious of, of Madison and the other framers to have noted and observed that we had to have – if you wanted to get good government, you needed to have impeachment as a, as a potential remedy because it's, it's the only sanction that, that's severe enough to keep people on the straight and narrow. And there's really not much else to, you know, the judges are not accountable to the public. So if you can't, if you can't reach them this way, you can't reach them anyway. 
So you think that some, I mean, this judge, what he did, you don't need a law degree. You don't even really need to be that up on current events to know that what this guy's doing out in California with the uh, decision to overrule the president on an issue that's clearly presidential prerogative. If judges are just going to keep doing this, they, they pose their own threat to the system, really. And I think that, you know, well, as you say, impeachment yeah. is a process we have for a reason. I feel like people have this. We've been sold this bill of goods about a judiciary that cannot be touched and cannot be held accountable ever, ever, ever. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. No, it's not. And, and you know, the other thing about it, Buck, is it's an amazing system where we give such power to the judiciary when, uh, you know, as Hamilton noted and as the framers noted, they don't have anything but judgment. They don't control the purse. They don't control the sword. Um, so it's their own what, – what they have to go on is their own legitimacy. That's what makes us accept their judgments, this idea that we all have internalized that there really is an objective law out there and they really are doing the best they can to apply it to these very controversial fact patterns. And if they lose that, and if we don't have legitimacy in the courts, then you don't have the rule of law anymore. So it's, it's really important that it gets repaired. What are you working on next, Andy? Where should people go? I mean, National Review to read your writing, but what can they expect? Uh, what's the next McCarthy opus? Tomorrow at the, uh, in my weekend column at National Review, we're going to talk about collusion 3.0, oh. which is the, uh, the latest narrative, which has to do with whether uh, the Russians used the National Rifle Association uh, to approach the Trump campaign. Everybody follow Andy McCarthy, Andrew uh, McCarthy on Twitter, and check out his latest at National Review. Andy, have a great weekend. Thanks for making a little extra time for us. Uh, come back soon. Thanks so much, Buck. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break here. I feel like I, I haven't yet had a chance to speak about the March for Life. Uh, and I have been meaning to. So we will talk about that on the other side of this break. Uh, that's something that I, I know it's uh, late on a Friday, maybe. It's uh, usually a time when we talk about lighter subject matter. But the March for Life is something that we definitely should spend some time discussing. And, and I was very pleased. I watched live as the president gave his speech to the uh, attendees, to the marchers. And it was very, very good thing. Also want to hear from all of you, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. And uh, you can send me your messages on Facebook, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. This weekend, I'm working on that Fall of Constantinople podcast, everybody, for Shields High. So I uh, hope many of you listening, even if you're not usually a podcast listener, I'm telling you, it's great. I listen to podcasts all the time. In fact, I listen to history podcasts, even some that are not particularly good in terms of the presentation, but the information is good, and I like to uh, maximize my time and the usage of my time. So I listen to podcasts. Uh, Miss Molly even convinced me to get those little earbuds now that are Bluetooth. So I'm like one of the hip, cool kids now. I, I have Bluetooth ear things. Whatever those, yeah, those things that go in your ears that that make the music. Uh, but I listen to podcasts all the time. You should check it out. Go on iTunes, or you could also uh, listen on Stitcher. Um, you can listen to the iHeart app if you've got some apps on your phone. You should definitely have the iHeart app. So, Fall of Constantinople coming up on this Monday. We will talk about the March for Life on the other side of this break. Stay with me. The March for Life is a movement born out of love. You love your families, you love your neighbors, you love our nation, 
and you love every child, born and unborn, because you believe that every life is sacred, that every child is a precious gift from God. President Trump today speaking to the March for Life in Washington, D.C. Um, God bless all those folks down there who were taking the time to actually do something that I am sure they will always be very proud of. And that really does matter. Um, before I get into more of just their uh, their message and the importance of, of what they were doing, to me it's, it is very noteworthy that the president of the United States, this is the first president of the United States, President Trump, who spoke at the March for Life. And for all of the things that you know, people have said about Trump up to this point, for all the stories the media has been running about how you know, they disapprove of, well, that's a very gentle way of saying it, but I don't want to go too far down those rabbit holes. The fact of the matter is the president recognized a very important movement today in D.C. You know, I was asked recently by a fellow commentator who is not a conservative, uh, he said, you know, what do, what does the right really even believe anymore? And now this could be a very complicated discussion, and there's a, I have a lot of answers. There's a lot of things. I, and a lot of you would immediately jump to limited government and rule of law and the Constitution, and all of that is is true, but he meant more in terms of specific policies. But the first thing that came to mind, because it really is the biggest single differentiator between the Democrat Party and the Republican Party between the right and the left, politically speaking, in this country, is the issue of life and the treatment of the unborn and respecting the lives of the unborn as as human beings. It is one aspect of the national political discussion where I still believe uh, it's just a matter of time before people look back at the the current laws because of Roe v. Wade and look back at the decades after Roe and think, how was that possible? How did we as a country ever allow this uh, abortion on demand and, and millions and millions of these procedures done, uh, lives stamped out before they could ever truly come into the world uh, beyond their mother's wombs, how could we ever have allowed this as a country that in so many ways is the shining light for the rest of the world? I do believe there will be a reckoning. I think it is just a matter of time, but there will come a point at which we will finally understand, and I don't know how we'll ever really be able to I mean, we'll understand that this is wrong, what's going on right now in the country, and I don't know how we'll ever really come to grips with it, because once you have a, a, once you achieve moral clarity on the issue of life, there is not a middle ground. There's not some halfway, and I think that the uh, the March for Life and the media's, I often beat up on the media, but the uh, media's refusal to cover it uh, and to give it the kind of respect and it's because they 
honestly, they despise this entire movement. Uh, much of the media, I mean, you go to left-wing media, places like the New York Times, Washington Post, they feel like there is something deeply regressive in people who just want babies to be born. Um, there are few things that the Republican Party can point to and say we are still, despite everything, we are correct on that. Um, and this is one of them. And uh, As a born and raised Catholic, a baptized Catholic, I can also say for all the troubles the Catholic Church has had, still right on this one. I'm still on the right side of history, despite the fact that the uh, laws in this country currently say otherwise. So I, I wanted to take a, a moment to just say thank you to all of the uh, men and women who were down in D.C. Um, I think it's a sign that it's it's there's still a time in this country where people have belief that they can do good things, and there is so much uh, that we could do, so much more that we can do to respect and protect life in this country. And so the movement is very, very, very important. Um, on a policy side of this, because you can't completely separate the two, it's not just about the morality and the ethics and taking a brave stand. Uh, you, you have to get the Republicans to defund Planned Parenthood. If nothing else, what we've seen from the current situation of DACA is that Democrats will march in lockstep with each other. Republicans could take a page from the Democrat playbook on that. Yeah, it's just a, a frustration that Democrats are so solidified and so unified on this. Um, and Republicans, I, I just wish they would have the same courage of their convictions when it comes to the legislative side of this. Because whatever they could do, and, and I agree with, with those who say, uh, even putting in place restrictions is not enough, but restrictions, for example, on late-term abortions or restrictions at uh, different uh, weeks of gestation for the fetus, which is just another word for a baby, whatever we could do, whatever lives could be saved in the, in the interim uh, is better than the alternative. And I, I think this is the one issue as well where it's quite clear that those of us who work in uh, conservative media, those of us on the right who are activists, who are doing whatever we can to get the word out, you know, citizen activists, citizen journalists everywhere who are pushing the truth on this, it's all worth it. This is one of those where you don't have, it doesn't matter at the at the end of the day if you can achieve the policy goals that you want in the short term. It doesn't really matter if you can get it exactly the way that it should be. Yeah. Every life counts and every life saved is something that we should all be very pleased and uh, and very proud of. It's, it's important. It is very, very important. One thing I wanted to note, there was actually a policy part of Trump's speech today at the march. Here's what the president said about re reversing an Obama-era policy. I have also just reversed the previous administration's policy that restricted states' efforts to direct Medicaid funding away from abortion facilities that violate the law.
So the president isn't just rhetorically invested in the pro-life movement. The president has taken actions that are benefiting the pro-life movement. And we could just use the shorthand as well, just benefiting life, which is what is so very, very critical about all this. Usually in the, in the latter part of the show, especially on a Friday, I wouldn't get into so uh, heavy and heavy a topic, but it's such an important one. And, you know, the March for Life, I, I hope that I can be a part of it one day. I'm up here in New York City and I've got obligations here in town, but uh, that is a march that I would be very proud to be a part of. So that's I wanted to say a few words about it. I am going to close out the show probably here in a few minutes with some suggestions that I had received on Netflix, uh, Netflix shows the weekend. I'm looking to put some new stuff in the queue. I'm going to wait until Monday for a, a team, team Buck roll call because um, I, I want to see what you all think about some of the changes that I'm planning on making. So some minor changes, but some of the changes I'm planning on making to the Shields High podcast. So that will be out on Monday, and I think Roll Call will be a very effective way to get into what you think about that Monday night, uh, assuming a lot of you can get a chance to listen to it. So that is uh, my plan for that. But by all means, also, we, we will start uh, pulling from the official Team Buck email account. It's officialteambuck at gmail.com. You can let us know your thoughts there. And don't forget, if you would like to buy a T-shirt, we are still selling Team Buck gear on BuckSexton.com. Dot com. Uh, so with that, when we come back, we're just going to have some closing thoughts for you. Stay right there. Well, team, it's been quite a week here in the hut. So I have to say it is uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to having some some downtime because I I'm getting the sense that next week is going to be quite a crazy one. That is my uh, <laughs> that is my very obvious very obvious guesstimate of what to expect. Uh, a couple of things. One is that I really had, I think I had said here on the show recently uh, that I was going to go see a movie. And, you know, I just always back off of seeing movies because I'd so much rather be at home and have my sweatpants and be able to pause it, you know, throw some chicken nugs in the, in the microwave. People just ruin movies. But, you know, Miss Molly's back from a, a work trip this weekend. And if she wants to see a movie, I told her I'm willing to do it. But for me, that's that is a, that is a rarity. And movies are at like, a, I don't know, I want to say a decade low or something. It's the people are not going to movies quite the same way because the home viewing experience is good. I think the movie, the movie theater business is, you know, I mean, I don't mean this from, I don't know if it's true from an economic perspective, but I think the whole notion of going to see the movies and paying 10 or 12 bucks is, uh, that is going away. I think it's 20 bucks in New York now. I go to the movies so seldom that I'm stuck in like 1990s dollars when it comes to, it comes to the movies. The one thing I wanted to see was the Churchill movie. So uh, I'm hoping that maybe they put that out on iTunes sooner rather than later. Uh, and, and also... Uh, I'm going to start, I asked last night on Netflix, I tried to start watching a show called Godless. Same title, I believe, as an Ann Coulter book that I read some years ago. The Ann Coulter book, way better than this TV show. The TV show, it's got some social justice, feminism, Western stuff going on that's just not, not, 
particularly entertaining viewing, at least uh, not not for me. I'm I watch it and I'm like, this is not cool. Uh, I, I don't need to be watching a show about 1870s New Mexico, roughly circa 1870s New Mexico. And, you know, you've got, you know, the, the strong female characters who can gunfight just as well as all the men folk. I'm like, all right, you know, I, I get it. Right. But enough's enough. It's just not a very good show. And my biggest problem with it is that they got a bunch of British actors playing these Americans. One of the British actors I know from the show Downton Abbey, don't judge, I used to watch Downton Abbey, but one of the British actors is uh, Lady Mary, so I'm used to her being like, oh, have, have I interrupted? Oh, I've just walked into the room. Am I, should I go? Oh. And now she's all like, yeah, you know, I got a rifle and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot the first darn son of a gun who steps onto my property. And I'm like, no, Lady Mary is not... This is not working. And then, as as if that wasn't enough uh, to get me upset, uh, we've got plenty of American actors. You got Christian Bale in this movie. Uh, uh, I forget what it's called. What's it called? The movie that's out right now. I don't know. It's it's a it's another western, which I probably won't go see. But Christian Bale is a British guy, and I think he might actually be Welsh. He plays he's the Batman actor. For those of you who don't know, which I'm sure all of you know that. But then you got in the Godless show, the little, now some of you could be like, Buck, you, you're really, Man Card is in serious jeopardy right now. But the, the movie, uh, I was going to say Almost Famous, which is a very overrated movie, but that's different. Love Actually, which is this British movie that, yeah, yeah, your thumbs up, really? Oh, gosh. Quinn is giving it a thumbs up, and I am, I am not seeing it as a thumbs up movie, man. I've been, I've been forced by various women in my life. My sister likes the movie. You know, I've been forced to watch, you know, I've had girlfriends who like this movie. Everyone likes this movie who's female. Uh, but there's a little blonde kid who's like, my my heart's broken unless I can, you know, convince this girl that she's the love of my life, right? And he's like seven or something. And I know it's supposed to be cute, but it's really kind of trite. And he learns to play the drums. And those of you who've seen the movie know what I'm talking He's like this little blonde kid with a little British accent. He's in Godless as well, and he's supposed to be like a smooth-talking, you know, deputy deputy sheriff who's good with all the, you know, pew, 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 you know, spinning the handguns around and all. And I'm just like, come on, man. You know, can we, can we get an American to play the role? I, I, we, we don't need to be importing people from London to pretend to be our cowboys. We've got plenty of people here that would step into the cowboy role and do quite well. So I asked last night on, on Netflix, I crowdsourced my Netflix queue for the weekend. So when I'm not working on the fall of Constantinople, I'll have something to do. And sure enough, I have settled on a show called, uh, I think it's called Longmire. Do you know Longmire? Have you heard of this one? This is it. No, no, no. Long. I think it's called Longmire. Wait, I, I should probably go back to my Twitter here and see what the uh, what the recommendations were. But there's some good stuff that I have not yet seen that I am hoping to get a chance to see uh, that is on Netflix. I did think The Punisher was very, very uh, disappointing because I liked the uh, Daredevil series. So I'm somebody who should be kind of in their in their target audience here i'm somebody who should be i should be excited about uh 
I think his name is John Bernthal, the actor. You know, I think that he does a good job. And the Punisher thing, though, they just they push this whole storyline about how it's uh, you know the the PTSD and, and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, guys, this is supposed to be a superhero comic book. It's not supposed to be a. a they always make it political, which for me just kind of kind of ruins it. Oh, Justified is a show that was recommended to me that I haven't seen. That I will check out. Although I don't know if that's on Netflix, but I, I've heard that that's very, very good. Um, so we've got those. I've, I've got some options for some viewing this weekend. I'm going to try to take Saturday off from politics and the news cycle. I'm going to try and do something other than uh, read the newspapers and web <laughs> the newspapers. I don't read newspapers, but you know what I mean. Websites and all that stuff. I'm I'm hoping to get. Something else going over the weekend, because if you allow yourself, especially in this business, you end up just spending all your time thinking about what the next piece of legislation is going to be. And sure enough, that's not a not a good way to not a good way to go through. Oh, Ozark was the show everybody was telling me about Ozark. So that's maybe one that I'll have to uh, give a shot to. I'll check out Ozark. All right. I'm going to close it up there. Team for this edition of the Buck Sexton Show. The Freedom Hut is going to shut down for just a few days. Uh, I'm going to be releasing the Fall of Constance and Open Podcast Monday, so do subscribe to that on iTunes, please. Um, love to see those numbers keep going up. We're also going to do a few episodes next week. Some of them will be a little shorter. I think we're going to do some after-action deep dives into parts of the battle that I didn't talk about in the official or, or the first show. So we got a lot coming. And uh, with that, I'm just going to say have a great weekend, everybody, and shields high.